Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, am I on? I think maybe I'm on. Is anyone still there? <laughs> Hi, how you doing? It's Monday. It's Monday, April 5th. Beautiful, sunny Monday. I was just looking out the window at a at a woodpecker, little red head, and uh, he was he was taking a bath in atop this atop this little uh, waterfall that I have on my little pond in my backyard. What a lovely, lovely sight. And speaking of, oh, I have to tell you a story. Um, I have to tell you a story of something that happened. I think it happened on Friday. I was sitting uh, in my living room uh, with my dog, and I was reading, as is my habit, and the living room overlooks, uh, you know, the backyard where the woodpecker is. And out of the corner of my eye, a peripheral vision, I'm not sure what happened first, the sound or the, or, or the, the, this thing, this big, it looked like a big brown, huge, big thing crashed out of the sky. I mean, I heard it hit the, hit the ground outside. It was like this brown bomb. It was nothing. It was nothing that I could make any immediate sense of, you know, it it was total cognitive uh, confusion. Uh, What the heck? I mean, in all this split second, what? It was a big noise, a big thing on, you know, a UFO essentially, because I didn't know it clearly had come out of the sky and, and crashed into my into my backyard the dog and i both you know jumped dumbstruck he didn't know what to make of it either it's not like he started barking right away it was like he and i both had the same look on our face like what the and i jumped up and I mean, equal points, uh, equal measures, curiosity and some concern <laughs> and race to the window. And there was the biggest effing turkey I have ever seen. I mean, This thing, look, I know this is where eyewitness accounts go awry, but it looked like a 50 pound bird and it had made an extremely uh you know uh, inglorious entrance uh into my into my yard it was not like it glided down it came crashing out of the i I don't know i don't know and the first thing i could think of is get a picture and i raced to my phone and by the time i got it on photo and camera and all this kind of stuff i turned around and it was gone 
so I missed it. It's <laughs> 50 pound turkey taking flight, but it did get out of my yard, which is fenced in. I mean, un, unbelievable. I mean, it was, I wish I had, I wish I had photographic proof. That's all I want to say. And, and because I wanted to remember to tell you this, uh, little event. Um, I had written at the top of a little scratch pad that I have next to me, the word Turkey. And I had looked at that um, maybe about 20 minutes ago. And I thought, Turkey, thinking of the country, because I write down subject things I want to remember to talk about. And I thought, Turkey, what the heck happened in Turkey? And then I remember, oh, no, it's turkey, the turkey. And that made me think, this is what happens when you've lived a full life. One thing just gallops into another memory. When I first started in television in Madison, Wisconsin, um, this is in, you know, the the very early days of television. Uh, there was no, we weren't using any kind of digital stuff. There were no computers. There was no, it was nothing, you know, like this. And so I anchored the, the weekend news and I pretty much did everything. The weekend crew amounted to me and a photographer. That was about it. And you'd race around all day and, and gather news. And then you'd come back and you'd write an entire broadcast. And then then I would have to go through these files so that if, in fact, and in the instance I'm thinking of, there there was a big story in the country of Turkey, um, you pull, uh, we would have to pull little, little slides that would uh, then be given in a specific order with the script to the director. So that when I started the story on and in Turkey today, uh, you know, a map of Turkey would show up behind me. That's the way it worked then. It hadn't. I mean, it it so does not work that way now. It's a joke, but that was it. I had to physically find the uh, a slide, something to illustrate, and put it in order. And so I did. I went to the museum. I saw Turkey. Pulled it. <laughs> And what happened, to cut to the chase, is when I gravely began the story on, and today, in Turkey, apparently right next to my head was, and what the viewers saw, was a large roasted turkey, like for Thanksgiving. And I didn't know that. So I continued very seriously on about some horror happening in Turkey <laughs> with, with this turkey <laughs> next to my head. I, you know, there. Okay, enough on Turkey already. Well, they're all my Turkey stories. Uh, oh, did not watch any of the March Madness this year, although I've often said it is the greatest uh, sporting event. Uh, it's just somehow always amazing. And for some reason, I lucked out and tuned in Saturday night 
to the game between, this is the semifinal game, between Gonzaga and UCLA. A number one seed against an upstart 11 seed. Oh, my God. Any of you who saw it, I don't have to say anything, right? That might have been the greatest game I've ever seen. And I'm not that, you know, a total fan. That might have been the the most amazing in terms of of two teams playing top of the game. Uh, just beautiful, beautiful, incredible. I, 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 and then the drama of it. And then the, you think it's done and then it's not. And then it's done. It was unbelievable. I cannot tell you that has to go down as one of the greatest basketball games of all time. Has to. I mean, it was up there with like, you know, the the ending was up there like with uh, Franco Harris and the, and the Wachamahookie uh, reception. Seriously. Unbelievable. Just had to say it. Okay, what else do I have to tell you guys? Um, the... The things that I um, that I read, while not having turkeys falling out of the sky um, this weekend, two of the things I read that that most affected me, uh, and consequently now I'm going to subject you to them. <laughs> They're both obituary. But this is why I love Obit so much, because they are these wonderful, like, stories. They're they're stories of a life, of someone's life from beginning to end. And they so often are so mind-blowingly inspirational or... Humbling. I mean, just humbling because you think, look at what this person did with their time. So, it, I mean, obituaries, if read uh, well, can I think make us live better lives? I want to share, I'm not going to give them to you both. They're both of black men. This is coincidentally, I guess. I don't know. But the first, and I never heard of either of them. The one I want to share with you first is a guy named Alvin Sykes, S-Y-K-E-S. I've already lived 10 years longer than he was given. And in his time, he had more impact on this, on people's lives than I could ever have if I lived to be 150 and stepped up my game. And he started from nothing, even worse than nothing. And never had anything. 
amazing human being. Alvin Sykes was born in Kansas City, 1956. He was born to a child who had been raped by his father, right? Because, okay, so his father was a rapist who raped a child, his mother, who gave birth to him when she was 14 years old. That was his beginning. And eight days after his birth, someone who knew his mother, who had a good heart, a woman named Bernetta Page, took him in to her home. It was not an easy childhood. He suffered from epilepsy, mental illness, was in and out of hospitals, was sexually assaulted by a neighbor twice. Bernetta Page, who had taken him in out of the goodness of her heart, mortgaged her house to cover his medical bills. And because he just became too much for her, she sent him later to Boys Town, which I only know of from like this, that old Bing Crosby movie. It was a a home for, well, boys that were at risk, right? I believe run by this priest that Bing Crosby played. And it was in Omaha. So Alvin Sykes gets sent there. The obituary doesn't make clear when he left there, but he did. And he then bounced around, lived with his birth mother for a year, then with an uncle. And he had no, he was this kid just bouncing from here to there. And then he bounced himself right out of school. He'd had it. Eighth grade, that's as far as he went. He didn't tell anybody necessarily. And what he did is when he left his uncle's house at the time, he looked like he was going to school, but he didn't. And he went to pass the time in the uh, library, the main library in Kansas City. And so he stayed in there and he just read. As he says, that's where I got my education. (laughs) He educated himself. And then he joined the Marines. And then he bounced around. He worked around a little bit on the outskirts of Kansas City's music scene. Um, He met the 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 jazz uh, great uh, Herbie Hancock and Hancock befriended him and Hancock persuaded him 
to convert to Buddhism. She did. And so in his 20s, he really became a fervent Buddhist. He, he lived a monk's life. He rarely held a job. He, he, he simply wore secondhand clothing. He did not have a permanent address. He would live off uh, the kindness of <laughs> friends and, um, and, and crash with them most of the time. He never learned to drive a car, so he walked everywhere. And more than often, where he ended up was the Kansas City Library still. The obituary I read of him was in the New York Times. And it said that United States Attorneys General, both Republican and Democrat, acknowledged that he was one of the more brilliant legal and legislated, legislative operators they'd ever encountered. What? He dropped out of school in the eighth grade. He didn't go back. And his work in law and legal and legislative work is mind-blowing. Let me give you a few for instances. Because he read so voraciously, it's somewhat akin to August Wilson, who also left and went over to the Carnegie Library and read and read and read and read, right? This guy was reading a lot about law. And he was really interested in how the world worked, the world he lived in. And he ended up understanding things better than anybody. And that's what all these brilliant Yale, Harvard educated, you know, powerful people who encountered him said, my God. In his life, he successfully lobbied for local laws, state laws, federal laws, reforming jury selection promoting animal rights, uh, enhancing DNA, the role of DNA in murder investigations. There wasn't anything that he didn't seem to have a hand in. As the director of, the, of a center, a uh, civil rights center said, he changed the face of American law His, verse, his first victory, 1983, he ended up persuading the Department of Justice, federal, 
to reopen the case of a black musician who had been killed by a white guy in a Kansas City park three years before. It shouldn't surprise you. The jury, of course, acquitted the white guy. But Sykes didn't think that was true. And he figured out a way to almost force the Department of Justice to reopen that case based on the 1968 Civil Rights Act. And in fact, they did. And the white killer was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Now, it turns out that the man, the black man that had been killed, was married to a woman who was a second cousin to Emmett Till, a black boy who was viciously murdered, of course. You know. And that got Alvin Sykes thinking, I gotta, I gotta, we gotta get this one reopened. We've gotta get to the bottom of it. He spent years researching the case. He was convinced there was a way to reopen it. He got the Justice Department's attention, and then nothing really happened, and then he did it again. He never stopped. 2005, 2018. But that was not all he was working on, because he started looking at all these cold cases. And in 2005, he... He helped legislators write a bill to fund a civil rights cold case initiative in the FBI. Well, guess what? I, did, I said legislators, I meant Congress. Uh, that bill bumped into some serious opposition. And it shouldn't surprise you that the opposition was from the Republicans, of course, because what are Republicans for but to stand in the way of any progress? And the senator that was really holding things up was Tom Coburn of Oklahoma. Alvin Sykes, the eighth grade dropout, reached out to Senator Coburn and reached out and reached out and kept failing, couldn't get a meeting, couldn't get a meeting, kept attempting it and finally got through to him. And following an hours long conversation, Republican Senator Tom Coburn of Oklahoma not only relented, but became a major advocate 
for the bill. He said on the Senate floor, we're going to see this bill come into fruition. I cannot say enough about the stamina, the integrity, the forthrightness, the determination of this man, Alvin Sykes. In 2013, the Kansas City Library named Alvin Sykes its first scholar in residence because he was, he'd lived much of his life there. He was their first scholar in residence. The amount of work he apparently did, the amount of cases and legislation he authored, helped write, then pushed through, as I said, city level, state level, federal level. This is a guy, never graduated from high school, never went to college, never went to law school, and he outperformed all of the others who had. He had nothing ever, but his astonishing hunger to make things better. And I think you can trace that back to his meeting with Herbie Hancock and his embrace of the tenets of Buddhism. Last year, he was rushing through a train station. Again, never, ever learned to drive. He had to catch a train to get to Chicago because he was going to an 80th birthday party. He was still working on Emmett Till, trying to open that again. And the 80th birthday party was for a guy named Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr., who, when he was a child, was the last person to ever see Emmett Till alive. Except, of course, for his killers. So... Here is Alvin Sykes last year racing to get to the train, to get to the birthday party, to find whatever he could, elicit whatever information, whatever contacts he could, still work on the Emmett Till thing. And he tripped and hit his head. And it left him paralyzed and hospitalized for the rest of his life. which ended just a week ago. He couldn't grip a pen. He couldn't, couldn't do much of anything. And do you know, up until almost the minute he died, he continued to work. 
in the last year, he successfully pushed for a bill to abolish laws that limit, put a limit, the statute of limitation on childhood sexual assault cases. I, I'm so blown away by this man who I never knew of. Never caught a break. Alvin Sykes, S-Y-K-E-S. Self-taught. Indefatigable defender of justice and civil rights who packed more into his 64 years than most people will ever come close to. Oh, okay. So that was, that was one. I'll spare you the other for a little while. It's just amazing what people can do. What people can do. A lot of us should step up our game. <laughs> Don't you think? I know I should. And then again, and then again, I've been reading a lot of articles about so many of us are sort of stuck in a bit of a funk because of, well, spending this last 13, 13 months you know, in either solitary confinement or lockdown or or being so anxious we can barely function of having to reinvent the way we do almost anything. So I don't know that I would put too much pressure on any of us at this point. I was squawking the other, uh, I think last week, about, you know, learning English and how hard it would be because of nothing makes sense. Our spelling doesn't make any sense. And I saw something today that made me think of it. It was about somebody squawking about, what are all these silent Ks doing in words? I mean, like knit. The word K and I knit a sweater. What the heck is there a K in there for? You look at a word like knuckle, and there's two K's in there, but frankly, neither of them is necessary. <coughs> you could argue. I don't necessarily. So there's two K's there that don't even, they're in there, but why? And then, <coughs> excuse me, the person who was squawking about it said, and then there's the three K's that are silent in the word Republican. Just saying. I have not watched a network or any, any or cable news for three or four days now, right? So I don't know if this thing that's going on in uh, in Florida is getting much attention. 
And I, I don't know if I'm up to date on it, but geez, I mean, there's a potential extraordinary uh, environmental disaster there. I hope they're getting it under control. I'm a, I mean, I look and it's not a front page story, I, I, which, so maybe it is getting under control. People have been evacuated. There's a, um, there's some kind of a holding a, a reservoir that's holding waste, radioactive waste water. And um, it's leaking and it's, it, it could break. And all that radioactive wastewater would just come, you know, and it'd end up in Tampa Bay. A lot has already leaked out. So I, I don't have a clue. But to me, my God. And you know what? So it, it reminds us of, again, we're such busy little bees, us humans. So... Where did this radioactive wastewater come from? Well, apparently it's the it's the byproduct of making fertilizer. Now, I got to tell you, fertilizer seems to be at the basis of a lot of uh, horror. <laughs> you remember how runoff from fertilizer used by farmers um, in Ohio farming near Lake Erie um, is that Lake Erie? Maybe it's Huron. I don't know what the hell lake it is. I think it's maybe Erie. And it, it gets into, it leaches into the lake and causes these huge algae blooms, which kill off all the, all the life there and screw up the water supply. And then you think of manufacturing fertilizer and how sometimes, seems to me it's always in Texas, that because it's so combustible, that kaplooey, it blows up and almost levels, you know, an entire neighborhood. And now we find out that in this case, the uh, byproduct is radioactive. How the hell did that happen? Maybe we should rethink fertilizer. I, good God. Okay. Uh, hang on here. Hey, I don't know if, if, if some of you maybe saw, uh, 60 minutes last night. I did watch part of it. And was introduced to the most extraordinary person, uh, another black man, Darren Walker, who grew up poor, Texas, single family, uh, just raised by a mom in a little shack of a house. Uh, and he now heads one of the Ford Foundation, which is one of the largest grant-giving charitable uh, foundations in the country, it's he's given away, you know, uh, Henry Ford's money, up to half a billion a year, I think. And so it was pointed out that the original Henry Ford would probably plot, <laughs> 
I use a Yiddish word because Henry Ford was such a effing anti-Semite that I, I'm just trying to annoy him. Henry Ford would plot if he knew that this black guy, on top of it, a gay black guy, is giving all his money away and is giving it away specifically to try to undo the amazing inequality in this country. And one of the things, and he's just fearless, this guy. So here's a guy whose job is not just give money away, but certainly not to offend the people who give him the money, right? I mean, they're raising money, these foundations, all the time. And then they dispense it as well. And yet he goes, he makes donors. He makes the very rich uncomfortable. And I thought it was brilliant what he said. He said, he, he said you know, hey, clearly generosity doesn't work. I mean, you can have rich people throwing money. Uh, you know, that's fine. Yeah, fine. But look where we are. That's what we've been doing. He said, we've got to get people to think beyond generosity. And they need to work, work for justice. Because if you have a just society, it will be an equal society. And working for justice is a whole lot harder than writing a check, no matter how big. And he says all these rich folks who give all this money and then feel so good about themselves have got to realize that they're also part of this system that creates the inequality in the first place. So they shouldn't feel quite so good about themselves. So he just flat out said, look, generosity makes the donor feel good. It's more about them. <laughs> generosity makes the donor feel good, but justice implicates the donor. Wow. Okay. And speaking of that, good God, you know, I, uh, Robert Reich, uh, Reich, I'm not sure how he pronounced it, uh, uh, had a, a tweet in, in, in which he said, and, you know, you see these things a lot and it just makes your head explode. But I'm going to assume he's got, he's, this is probably correct. And if he's off by a, a, you know, a number or two, doesn't matter. The point is made. He tweeted, the three wealthiest families in this country, the three wealthiest families own more than half of all the rest of us. I mean, 
take more than half of the of us, okay? And put all our stuff together, all our wealth. Put it all together. More than 50% of the of Americans put all this stuff together. Wow. And understand that there are three families in the country that have more. And so he was pointing out that there needs to be, which is what Biden wants to do, a tax on this kind of wealth. And see, here's the thing. Do you think for a minute if you taxed those three and then we'll drop down a little bit, let's just tax the top 100 richest Americans, okay? All billionaires. Tax them. I don't know what the tax rate is. Even make it 10%, make it 50%. I don't care. You can take that money and use it then for the good of all. And guess what? The three families will still be the three richest effing families in the country. Ha! So don't feel sorry for them. They'll still be so far ahead of everybody else. And in fact, won't change their lives one whit. Not one whit. Oh, man. We've got to get this stuff done. And we ain't going to get it done if we don't get that filibuster. Somebody better talk some sense into that friggin' mansion. God almighty. Boy, what else? I'm exhausting myself with my own, uh, with my own fervor here. Okay. Um, I'm going to share the other obit because, guys, I can't get enough of these kinds of stories. Hang on while I take a swig. I just can't get enough. As I said, I find them inspiring. You know, some people get inspiration by going to church. Hey, I was walking the dog uh, yesterday in my neighborhood and um, and someone, uh, one of the houses in the neighborhood had done the most amazing, I thought. I couldn't believe it. It was so cute. I'm always dumbstruck by people who really, you know, like decorate for specific holidays because um, I'm not into it. Personally, never have been, nor was my, nor I didn't come from a house that did that kind of thing. Never made a big to do about that stuff. So I'm always like, what? And what they've done is their entire front yard was just filled with bright colored plastic, I guess, eggs, 
Easter eggs. And I don't know, I'm assuming maybe that you could untwist them and there was candy or something. inside. I don't know. But there was all of these eggs all over the front yard for some excited children to encounter. And then I saw what blew me away was that leading up on the sidewalk and then to their front door, they had actually put prints, paw prints of, I guess, the Easter bunny, right? So there were like Easter bunny paw prints at just the right, you know, just like an Easter bunny walking around might have. And I thought, wow. Now, you know, that was, I thought, just adorable. Sometimes people get so out of, they go nuts with these big plastic blow-up horrors and all that, but this was something so adorable. And it it made me happy. So, second amazing life. Kenneth Kelly. I don't know. I never heard of him either. He lived a long life as opposed to Alvin Sykes. Kevin Kelly lived to be 94 years old. And he had, in many ways, um, I guess, a charmed life. Where to start? He was a respected scientist. Uh, He worked for Hughes aircraft company and in fact when Hughes offered him a job in the 50s about 53 uh, they were very involved in radar and missile guidance research and they, they wanted him they knew he was a smart cookie and they needed him and some of the white engineers who worked at Hughes said, what? We ain't working with this black guy. Are you kidding me? And Hughes said, no, we're not kidding you. As a matter of fact, we don't even need you. You're out of here. Now, that's pretty amazing for 1953, but that was one company, Hughes Aircraft, and they wanted Kenneth Kelly. The company even paid for him to get a master's degree at UCLA, and he rose quickly through the ranks, becoming a section head. Then he went on to a NASA subcontractor. He helped design massive ground-based radio stations that were there to communicate with uh, spacecraft, including the Apollo missions, and pretty much worked on the essentially the basis of modern satellite radio and television. Kenneth Kelly. But see, while... In the 50s, he was a respected scientist at work. 
couldn't really find a place to live in the suburbs around where he worked. He couldn't get a real estate agent to return his calls. He had two little boys and his family needed a home. So he jokingly said to a white friend, uh, hey, maybe, uh, could you like uh, front me here? Could you like buy the house and um, and then I'll pay you right back? And the friend said, sure, be glad to. And so that's what they did. And uh, the Kelly family moved into their first suburban home. Um, and of course, well, I don't have to go into how they were greeted, right? To quote him, the neighbors were up in arms. They refused to say hello. They crossed the street to avoid passing him or his children on the sidewalk. And I said, you know, why do I even have to go into this? Because you all know what the experience would have been. Because middle class black families who wanted to settle in the 50s in those booming suburbs were not wanted by the white folk. So Kenneth Kelly just never seemed to let anybody get in his way. So what he did, he he joined the San Fernando Valley Fair Housing Council. And he started up testing realtors, you know, sending black buyers to agents and where they get nowhere and then sending a white person in where they get the house. He became so committed to tearing down the barriers to black home ownership that in 1973, he quit his science job, everything he'd always done, his engineering job, to become a real estate agent. Now I gotta tell you, that that seems like what? What? And while he was going through the training, again, this early 70s, to be a real estate agent, the instructor said, I don't know what the heck you think you're doing because you're not gonna be able to sell houses in the valley here. You're a black guy. There aren't that many black people here. It's over 80% white. Within a few years after receiving his real estate, whatever that is, thing, license probably, he was one of the most prolific salesmen in the San Fernando Valley. In 1979, he was named the Realtor Associate of the Year (laughs) for the Valley. (laughs) And after he got all that straightened out, he went back to engineering in the 80s, again working for Hughes. Meanwhile, he also reached out to Charles Schultz, yeah, the guy who drew peanuts. 
And he wrote him a letter saying, I think it would just be a really wonderful thing if you would uh, have a black character in the strip. And initially, Schultz thought that that would look patronizing for some reason. But Kenneth Kelly said, oh, no. He wrote Schultz and said, an accusation of being patronizing. Well, that would be a small price to pay for the positive results that would accrue to having a black character who was just one of the gang whose skin color would be incidental. And Schultz agreed. And that's how, why am I blanking on that? The, uh, the black kid in, I uh, can't think of his name right now. But Franklin, it was Franklin. So <laughs> Franklin showed up in 1968. But I have to tell you, people's lives, again, just blow me away. His parents were immigrants from Jamaica. His dad was killed on a railroad job when he was just 18 months old, Kenneth. His mother was a domestic worker, a maid. And he told his teachers he wanted to be an engineer and they told him, you kidding me, black boy? Except one. And one teacher did encourage him and he ended up applying to and getting in to Brooklyn Technical High School, which was a real competitive thing. And then he applied to be a, a radio and radar technician in the Navy. And he was denied, of course, because, well, black folks didn't do that in the Navy. Again, he wouldn't take no for an answer. He wrote letters making his case, and within weeks, he was learning the latest innovations in naval communication technology. He left the Navy, went back to New York, attended the engineering school at NYU, graduated in 53, married the love of his life. They took their honeymoon to South Carolina, and on the way back, a truck jackknifed in front of them, hitting their car and killing his bride. Instantly. People's lives. That's when he decided to pick up and go to California. That's when he got the Hughes job, just to bring it all the way around again. And, um, the last research he did involved designing equipment that enabled Mars rovers to communicate with the Earth. And here's a quote from this guy. I meet so many people who are so pessimistic. I always thought I could. Is the intrepid caller still there or have they uh, decamped? Hello? Lynn, good morning. Hey, good morning. You've made my day. It's uh, 
it's it's just uh, it's just such a pleasant experience here listening to your show. Oh, from thank the, you. From the from the turkey until now. <laughs> <laughs> thank I got you. A, I got a couple of them big bombers that just drop out of nowhere and jeez, terrify my cat. Yeah, but have you ever seen them actually flapping and flying? I mean, he I don't know how he ever got airborne or they're how much, he got that. Jeez. They're much what? better just cruising. I, I when I used to work down on the strip by the um, by the busway. Uh, up on the hillside there, that little park named after, um, uh, what is it called? Uh, can't think of it offhand, but, but the turkeys live up, they go up there for a while. And then, um, and then as a part of their daily routine, they'll jump off, they'll, they'll jump off of the slope and glide. They glide down, uh, onto yeah, the, you know, I see them on Bigelow Boulevard. Um, Bigelow, that's, um, yeah, it's, that's it. That's the one you're thinking. You often see them there, right? Yeah, yeah. And then they uh, they go down, eat down by the railroad tracks, and make their way back up. And I think that's where they spend the evening is um, up on that hill. But wow. uh, yeah, <laughs> you brought up the irradiated water down in uh, Tampa. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know that's where. Uh, a lot of the migrating birds have to fly through that oh. area. Oh God! And uh, you know we've we've killed since they've been counting. Oh. They've, we've killed three billion of them in North America. It's it's a quarter of the entire population of birds um, oh. in in North America. And um, some of the my favorite birds come here, you know, in the migration and. Uh, I always wonder, you know, uh, if I fear for their return because there are so many adversarial experiences like drinking and and eating things that are in growing in the water, and right. uh, of course all the water birds that land um, on those um, dirt pond, those um, Bad, bad polluted ponds, yeah, whatever the yeah, whatever yeah. the stuff is, and yeah. um, it's just a it's just a sad experience. To yeah, we about. are we're just spoiling. You know, I I, I heard this uh, story that goes on NPR about some firm that has developed, like you said, I said, I mean, I'm sure it's not quite right to say this, like huge vacuum cleaner that they shoot up into space and it is now it is now vacuuming all the friggin' space junk that we've got out there traveling at like god knows tens of thousands of miles per hour and posing risks to you know other to satellites space stations all this kind of stuff we are doing what we've always done We've sure. polluted the air, we've polluted the water, we've polluted the land, and now we're polluting space. We just are the worst. The worst. One of, the, one of those astronaut turds could go right through one of them satellites, you know. Yeah. And, and they expel yep. they expel their waste. I mean, uh, they got to go. They got to do something. Maybe <laughs> they bag it and bring it back. I don't. I don't know. But, no, they do. Uh, they do. No, wait, 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 wait. I just, I read about that, and I think I shared it, but now I can't remember. They place it in, yes, it is, uh, it, it's kept. They do not jettison it, I don't think. Okay. 
Okay. Uh, well, that that answers that that question about the turd. But uh, you know, I, I I think that yeah, all of all of the all of the stuff we've been putting up there since the Sputniks and all of that back in the fifties, you know, it's it's all still floating around, and you know, they'll yep. they'll talk about one of these uh, ships now that that'll carry a hundred different satellites on at one of these Elon Musk deals. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like no big deal. Here, we're shooting another one up, and how many are going up from, you know, China and India and Israel? Yep. And I mean, everybody's doing it. Yep, everybody's doing it. Man, it's just so, you know, we, we just don't, I, I never, it's too depressing to even think about. But hey, thank you for your call. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, yeah. Well, I, initially it was, oh, you know, the cat's on the cat's staying here next to the broadcast and he hasn't run away yet. I mean, it used to be you come on, he'd, he'd head for the <laughs> hills, but but now he's sitting right through it. So we have made progress. You're sitting. With the cat. He, he likes the your cat. Voice, has gotten, he's gotten used to the voice. He likes well, your thank- voice, I think. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you so much. You're welcome, Lynn. Have a good one. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Well, guys, I think that's maybe it for today. I can't quite remember when we started because we did get in late. But um, I thank you, as always, for being there uh, for me because I do so enjoy uh, being able to do this. (laughs) Couldn't do it without you. So thank you. And my uh, tip of the hat to... uh, to Zach, our new producer, this was his first uh, show, and I don't know how how you know he's doing, but Zach, it's always an adventure. <laughs> Enjoy this beautiful day, guys. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live. Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.